My name is Laura Max Rose, and I have two girls and two very full hands. Parenting is one of the most intense, rewarding, and all-consuming adventures I've ever been on. And wherever you are in your journey, you're not alone. This podcast is where I ask all of my parenting questions and share the answers I find with you. We're all in this together, and I'm so glad you're here. Sit back, relax. You're listening to Look Ma No Hands. I am back today with Bleamy Heller. One interview with you was not enough. Thank you so much for coming back for a second episode. I'm so happy to have you on Look Ma No Hands. Thank you for having me again. I'm so, so happy to be here and to share this uh, idea, the ideas um, of sibling rivalry or what to do with sibling rivalry. With well, everyone. I always know like when an interview is going to do really well or a lot of people are gonna listen to it because they're my favorite ones to do. Um, it's usually when I'm the most curious and I have the most questions. And our last interview was listened to far and wide and I think so helpful for so many people. And I couldn't help but think of you almost immediately after I aired it because I've been, I, I love asking people questions about things that I'm running into. And right now I'm certainly running into a lot of questions about sibling dynamics. And I thought there's nobody better that I want to ask than her. You just released a course on sibling rivalry. It's on your website, bleamyheller.com. Totally worth it. It's like two and a half hours of just like densely packed, amazing information. And I watched it last night and it completely changed the way that I'm going to do this interview because to be honest, <laughs> I learned a lot that I thought I already knew. I really thought that like I knew exactly what I was doing wrong and I was just going to get validated. But no, there was so much that blew my mind. So I can't wait to ask you about it. And uh, let's just dive in and get started. I love how you, sorry. (laughs) Um, I love how you started your course because you just made me, and I'm sure so many people breathe a sigh of relief. You said when two or more people come together, there will inevitably be conflict. This is something that we don't take as a given. Why is that the case? Why is there inevitably conflict between two people? Because two different people have two different thoughts, opinions, ideas, and wants. And we have, we, we all the same needs, to be honest, but we all have different ways that we want to get those needs met. I want to met this way. You want to met, met that way. And those strategies, the ways that we want to get them met, they conflict and they conflict often. And that's just the way it is with two different human beings who have totally two different ways of wanting, wanting things to be because we have preferences and we have temperaments and personalities that are just entirely different from one another. And so it's a hundred percent inevitable. There's no way that to, unless one of them is completely burying their needs and their wants, then right, of course, then there won't be conflict, but that's not very healthy. Well, that's what so many of us learn to do as, an ad- as adults. And what I was thinking as I was watching your seminar was, your webinar, your seminar, was we view conflict inherently as bad when it's not. It's a natural part of life. And how many adults have I met who say, you know, I don't really know what to do when my husband and I disagree because nobody ever modeled healthy arguing for me. Arguing is a part of life. Disagreeing is a part of life. So if we can look at it as how can I help them navigate this in a healthy way as opposed to how do I eradicate it? I think we really set ourselves free as parents. Exactly, exactly. Because conflict is inevitable and it will always be present, the idea is to learn to, like you said, navigate it. And no, it even goes deeper than that. It's that the conflict in a way is beautiful because it's pointing to our needs that really we want them, we want met. 
And it's such an opportunity to really get to know the other person better and to meet their need in a way that works for everyone. It's really a way of connecting in a sense, if you think about it, right? It's right? very connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's vulnerable. And I think as parents, so many of us get triggered by conflict because we have no idea how to navigate it in our own adult lives. And we were taught, you know, fighting is bad. Not getting along is bad. Even so many books written about sibling rivalry are like how to stop the right, how, how to stop it, how to make it go away. And that's just like, you're chasing something that doesn't even exist. Exactly. There's yeah. that is not a goal. It's not a, a reasonable or possible goal, right? Unless you get one one child or both to bur bury their needs, like I said, but that's really unhealthy and we don't want that. We don't that's want not that. Gonna set them up for success. Exactly. And I had another thought while you were saying that, that I wanted to share and now it slipped my mind. Oh, well, I'll, it'll, if I remember it, I'll I'm sure it. I'll say something that'll remind you of it. You listed a lot of different things that contribute to conflict between siblings, resentment, jealousy, frustration with one another, conflicting wants and needs. But you mentioned that two of them are things we as parents actually do have a lot of control over. So we can't control everything that causes children to argue with each other, but there are two things that we definitely have control over the volume, I would say. Um, and that would be jealousy and resentment. Parents have the power to decrease and increase these two things between siblings, how, how do we contribute to jealousy and resentment between siblings? Yeah, yeah, so we do it by the way that we actually intervene in their conflicts. Well, that's one of the ways, right? It's also the way that we actually treat them, but I think most of it is really in the way that we intervene in their conflicts. We don't recognize that the conflict itself, the way that we intervene sends messages to our children about who do whose side am I taking? Who do I favor in this conflict? Even though that's not our intention, but that's the message our children are receiving sometimes by the way that we intervene. And then that makes them feel resentment towards our sibling. Like, why do you choose my sibling over me? Why do you like them better? Why are you caring about them more? Right? And then there's more jealousy. And then there's more, again, conflict because now they feel jealous, right? So by the way that we act towards our children, and especially during conflict, we can actually increase those feelings between them. So when I bought your course and I started watching it last night, I thought all of that was going to be extremely obvious to me. And I thought I'm not contributing to this in any way, right? When my kids are arguing, I don't really view myself as somebody who really takes a side. I really try to be equal, which we're going to talk about that. That was mind blowing for me. It's not about being equal. So we're going to get to that. Um, and then I watched what you were, I, I listened to what you were talking about and I realized, oh my gosh, I actually am contributing by doing things that I feel like are totally benign when they're arguing with each other. So you talk about not taking a side. I think most parents hear this and they're like, well, yeah, of course, like I know not to do that, but there are ways in which we're taking sides that we aren't even aware of. So tell us a little bit more about that and how we can remain neutral, even when it's so hard. Yeah, it's really hard to remain neutral. It took me years to learn how not to do that. And I still sometimes get caught up in it. But I think the idea is that many of us, like, like you said, without even realizing, we do take a side. We insert ourselves and we kind of sort of take a position where we're like, she's right, you're wrong. Or don't you see what she's trying to tell you? Or don't you see what he's trying to say? Or we're, or we're like, I think it makes sense to do this. Don't you think that makes sense? So we sort of insert our opinion into it without even realizing that that's what we're doing. Thinking, I'm not taking a side, I'm just showing them. You know, I'm just 
explaining to you're them. You're just explaining to them how to relate to each other. Like you're, that's what I always have kind of thought I'm doing, right? I'm showing you, you know, you can't do this to your sister. Here's a better way to work it out. Of course, there's going to be times where that's more than appropriate when somebody's hitting somebody else. But I was, you know, kind of guiding them and uh, along the lines of my opinion in almost every scenario. And I've been noticing more recently as my youngest gets older that all I knew was that I was doing something wrong. And so I was like, I'm going to talk to Blamey about this, but I didn't really know what it was. And as I was watching, I was thinking, oh yeah, like I'm totally, I'm totally picking sides and I'm totally giving them guidance based off of who I think is right and wrong. And so you said in your webinar that this is harmful because even when there's a conflict occurring between two siblings and one of them is so blatantly wrong and somebody's just doing something horrible to the other, when we inject ourselves with an when we inject our opinion, the one who is quote unquote wrong only can hear like my mom doesn't like me, my mom doesn't agree with me and they feel victimized by that and it's completely unproductive. Exactly, exactly. The, I think the message that they take away is my mom doesn't care about my opinion or my feelings because what we have to understand is even if they're doing something completely wrong, and this really all ties into the ideas and concepts of gentle parenting, even if they're doing something really malicious or, you know, I shouldn't say malicious because that's, that's an intention, even if they're doing something that's really, really horrible or mean to their sibling, underneath that is a vulnerable feeling and need. It's coming from a place of really desperately needing something. And when we are just like, that was so horrible to do and we're injecting our opinion and we're sort of taking sides with the other kid, that child feels completely unseen. Their need and their feeling feels completely irrelevant to us in their, from their perspective and they feel uncared for. They're just like, my parent doesn't get me or they don't really care about my experience. So walk right. me through a scenario in which two siblings are fighting over something, okay? And you've got one that's like holding on to the other one's toy, okay? It clearly belongs to the other kid. This may or may not have happened this morning. And the, yeah. one, the one who is the owner of the toy is desperately trying to get it back and screaming, mommy, my sister won't give me my toy back. It seems obvious as the parent, this toy belongs to the other kid. I'm going to go in and, and say that, right? How do I be yes. neutral and objective in this situation? Yeah, so it's really hard. And by the way, now I'm remembering what it is that I wanted to say before. What did I want to say? You said that sibling rivalry is trig triggering to us, right? Because we just don't like to see conflict. And I think another part of it is also because sibling conflict with siblings, especially among young children, is very um, primitive. You know, yes. they'll hit, they'll kick, they'll do things that are just so outrageous to us. Like our conflict looks a little bit more mature and evolved as adults sometimes. Sometimes, um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, right? And sometimes it's also just so obvious who's wrong that that can be really triggering for us. It's like, why would you do that to your sibling, you know? So that's number one. The first piece of advice is like, calm yourself down, right? If you're noticing that you're aroused, that you have this really like uh, sort of sense of alarm that gets uh, arises, in you or uh sort of what, what you're feeling like you feel like yeah hot. yes triggered exactly yeah exactly angry or whatever it is just take a breath like sometimes i literally just i'm like and that's the thing is i i, I said this i think in the course is like slow everything down we have this sort of again because we're so uncomfortable with conflict we feel the need to come in right away to fix it we have this very like obsession with like i need to make work it out let's work it out conflict oh my gosh work it out where I'm just like, wait, hold on, we can sit in conflict. It's okay to just be in the conflict without doing anything. Be more comfortable 
with just sitting in the conflict. I think this is super important. So, so first it's just like calm yourself down, right? Then you step in and say, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Let's all take a deep breath, right? And let's just sit in the conflict for a moment. Like, it's okay. We don't have to solve this and fix this. And then what I say is that, first of all, maybe I would say like, you know what, hand me the toy. You mean it's white? We're going to work this out, right? So maybe just so that like the toy is with me now, so everyone can calm a little bit down. And then I empathize with each party. I don't take sides. I'm just, I'm the listener. My job is to listen to both of you and to hear your sides and to help you hear each other's. So I'll turn to one or even both at the same time and tell me what's going on. And one says, I had a toy and she took it from me. Oh, you had a toy and she took it from you. You really didn't want her to. And then I says, no, I had it first. She was, I was having it. And then, and then I left it here and she took it, right? And so you say, oh, and you left it there and you really were intending to come back for it. And then she took it. Hmm. That's it. That's it. Stay there. Don't worry. You don't have to move on to solving the conflict and just keep empathizing, right? Wow. And then you empathize, empathize until they come, they calm a little bit down. See what empathy does is it's, it's understanding. We're offering understanding. And what happens when we offer understanding is we feel less alone and we feel less of the need to like defend our position because we're understood. So what happens is what you'll see with both is it will calm a little bit down. And then you just simply sit there and say like, Hmm, so you really felt like you had the toy first. And you said that you had it first because you really just put it down for a moment. Hmm. What can we do about this? And you as the parent, and this is the beautiful part, don't solve the conflict for them. Let them figure it out. Again, you can try to brainstorm with them a little bit. You can try, and this is the thing, if you don't feel a rush to fix it, you're going to feel much more comfortable allowing them to come up with something. See, the reason why we like come up with things is because again, we're rushing to solve it. We're like, we need to fix it already. It's okay. It doesn't have to be fixed yet. It can even be fixed tomorrow. Maybe we never fix it. Right. The idea is that leave it up to your children to figure out how to navigate it. And when we do that, we're allowing, first of all, we're giving them incredible skills for solving problems, for listening to each other, to figuring out what could work for both of them. But also because we haven't inserted our solution, we haven't chosen sides. As soon as you present a solution, you're taking a side because you're automatically choosing one one's position more than the other. You're, you're, you're the one who's you're the arbitrator now. You're deciding who's more wrong or who's more right, right? But automatically by solving it, when you allow them to solve it, they feel good about it. They've come to that decision themselves and that's it. Now, sometimes they just can't seem to figure it out. I say, go back to empathy. Keep empathizing, keep empathizing, keep empathizing and say like, hmm, I'm having a really hard time figuring this out. Let's keep at it until we can figure something out. So no rush, no rush. You don't have to figure it out. And sometimes, like I said, with my children, we just actually never do. Like they, they just can't seem to resolve it and they're happier with nobody getting it. That's what they're, that's their solution. And they're fine with that. And you know what? That's fine with me. And they're calmer because they feel heard and seen and understood. Exactly. I love and they, Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm saying they, they came up with that. That's what they wanted. They would have preferred that a thousand times over me coming in and thinking, you know, giving them a solution. I love that you say that whenever that feeling, that fire arises within you where you get urgent and panicked and you feel like you need to resolve something right away, or maybe you feel the impulse to yell or to control a situation or to pick a side, to pause and really look at that because that's your wound. That's your, that's your pain, right? And isn't that the whole journey here? That like, that's where the healing begins, where the conflict resolution begins. I find that the things that my children do that make me the craziest are either A, the things I was not allowed to do as a child. So like, you know, if I was called spoiled and one of my kids seems to be ungrateful for something, 
it's, it's bringing up something in me. Like I wasn't allowed to do that. Right. So it's this sort of process and being more compassionate to my own kid. I'm really healing my own, my own wound. Right. And if conflict was completely unacceptable, which I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, was anybody raised in the nineties where conflict was acceptable? I don't know. Like maybe yeah. if you like hippies, I'm not sure. I don't know. I still go to weddings where like people are like, we never like in the, I don't know. I, I still, I still, I went to a wedding recently where the groom was like talking about how wonderful it was that they never, they've never gotten into an argument. Like this was in wow. his vows. And I, I looked at my husband and I looked at each other and we just started like cracking up. And I was <laughs> like, oh my God, like I have no, I have no understanding or comprehension of that. Like I don't, yeah. But let me just to me it's a red flag. To me yeah. it's a red flag. It's like somebody's somebody's not saying what they actually never, want to mean. Have you? But like, I will tell you that like, of course we argue, and we've gotten so much better at it. And I think the goal is to get good at it. The goal isn't to eradicate it. The goal is to get good at yes. it. But I think we've both experienced shame, um, like subconsciously or consciously, that we do because I think what we heard at that wedding was like the goal of society. Like it's still the subconscious goal. Like we never fight, like everything's harmonious all the time. Like, yeah. oh my God, like, really? What do you mean? I don't, cause like you said, there's no two people who come into the world to, you could put in the same room together that are going to get along about absolutely everything. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. It just thinks the hundred percent of conflicts. And I would say it's really sad if they don't, because then they're actually, like I said, it's a portal to connection. So I would say that it's actually a barrier to a certain level of connectivity and connection. Arguments are the only way to get closer to another person in a certain sense. No, I, yeah, exactly. It's how we breed. It's how we breed intimacy with each other. So when our children are arguing and we weren't allowed that, or we're taught like it's bad, I think it's very easily as a parent to take those moments personally. Like what's going on? You know, I've had, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why are you fighting? And then you're taking it personally. Uh, there's a parenting coach who's come on many times. She always, her name's Randy Rubenstein. She always says like Q-tip, 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 like quit taking it personally. I'll say that in my head like a hundred times when I find myself going down that trap because it's just like everything, everything explodes. You talk about younger children having more primal interactions with each other when they're in conflict and that being really triggering for us adults. And I, I love how you say like, of course they're going to hit each other and spit at each other and kind of try to bite each other or whatever. We freak out about that because we're, we would be crazy as adults if we were acting that way, but that's actually very normal for them. Right. I think we freak out because we would be, it would be crazy to act that way as an adult. And then we get fearful, like, oh my gosh, when are they going to stop doing this? This is normal. And also another reason why, and a lot of people bring this up to me is that as a child, they remember being, um, I shouldn't say maybe, maybe bullied actually by a sibling where they were constantly hit and pushed and kicked by a sibling and their parent didn't really intervene or maybe their parent did, but didn't really help. Like it kept, it kept happening. So that's another reason why many parents can be really, really triggered. Like you said, our own experience that can be triggering for some parents. Now for that, I would actually really suggest probably like inner work therapy, something like that, you know, working through our own stuff around that, but about the idea of just in general, like being really worried about our kids hitting, kicking, pushing, biting. Like you said, my kids totally have bitten each other many times when they fit, right? Yeah, they get right. so frustrated with each other, right? So, so the thing is, is that is really developing a real, real understanding and I guess a trust that this is completely normal for young children to do. And that as they get older and as they mature and develop more impulse control and also learn more effective ways of communicating, they'll adopt different ways of communicating. 
right? And by the way, this is one of the beauties of offering empathy. When I step into a conflict and I'm offering empathy to a child and saying, like, you really wanted that and you really, what am I doing? I'm actually creating the language for them to communicate what it is that they're trying to communicate. I'm basically mirroring what it is that they wish they, they can say or that they wish they would have said or what it is that they really want to say. I'm giving them the words. And by, when we do that rep, like with repetition, the child eventually starts being able to adopt that kind of language. You're teaching them how to be a human being. Exactly. You're being the ambassador, right? Exactly. exactly. I love it. So you're, you're explaining the, 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 the feelings and the needs behind the, the hitting and behind the biting. You know, you're doing the communication piece. Yeah. Some of the other ways you described that it can increase jealousy and resentment between siblings, while there were some that were more obvious to me, there were a lot that I was actually really intrigued by that I wouldn't have thought about. Um, a lot of times I think parents have really good intentions when they try to make siblings play together, but you say that forcing them to play together really in any scenario is actually contributing to conflict. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So, um, and I think it comes from a good place. Like play together, play together. You love each other. Yeah. Even telling them how they feel about each other is also likely to come. So it's a lot of to be, to, to be forced to do something right is, is never, ever a good thing, right? It, the, what the feelings that arise from that are usually feelings of resentment. Um, uh, you know, it comes from a place of when we're forced to do something, it's a place of pressure and guilt, which never brings out any, it feelings of like warm and fuzzies, just the opposite, right? It's trying to and make so, somebody feel a way that they don't. The same thing with sharing a toy, making a child share. Even right. though we're taught, you know, we were taught as children, sharing is good. Yes. If a child doesn't want to share and we're forcing them to share, we can also contribute to that resentment as well. Exactly. We can make it actually them less likely to want to share, not more likely, right? And if you think about it, by the way, it makes no sense because forcing somebody to share is not actually sharing. Sharing it by definition is a choice. The, the, the definition of sharing is that I choose to contribute to you. If I don't choose to, that's not sharing. That's, that's not sharing. Yeah, that is not sharing. Sharing is right. If I'm sharing as an adult, it means that like the whole point why sharing is an attribute or a positive thing is that I actually chose to give from myself to you. If I didn't choose to, that's not actually giving, right? So, 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 okay. So with siblings, when we force them to play with one another, what we're actually doing is that we're creating now a feeling of like, oh, I don't be doing this with her right now and like my mom is making me like now I have to and so now what happens now that resentment either can be spilled out towards the parent but also towards a sibling oh if I just didn't have the sibling I wouldn't have to play with them get the exactly. sibling away from me I, I don't want them here like now that they're around I always have to do things with them my mom is always telling me my dad is always telling me to, to do things with them I don't want to so when we force them to play with them we're actually creating more resentment so we should never force interactions which can be very hard for some parents because they're like, I want to get along. Guess what? You want to get along. Don't force them. The less you force them, the more they'll get along. And, and, and children really are allowed to have their own space. They're allowed to want to play themselves or do their own thing. And we should really, really honor and respect that. We should really, really honor and respect that. And again, the reason why we have a hard time with that usually is because one of the children will usually cry, right? Let's, so let's say my daughter, she wants to play by herself and her sister's like, can I join? And she's like, no, I don't want to. Right? And so the younger one starts crying, but I wanted to play with you. It's only a hard bleed for the younger child. And we're like, why can't you just play with her? She just wants to play, right? And we're just like, again, taking sides. Yes. Yeah. We're not taking sides, taking Can't sides. Can't you just give her the toy so that she can stop yeah, crying? I used to do baby. that all the time. Yeah. I see she's so much younger than you. Can't you be nice to her? Just, just be nice. For her. Yes. yes. I didn't realize what I was doing, you know? 
And I was so clearly taking side because now let's think about the perspective of the older child. It's like, oh, my parent only sees the perspective of the younger sibling. They only see how sad they are and how much they want. What about me? What about the fact that I want space? Why is that not valid to my parents? Right? So, so, we, so we want both to be valid. Both are valid. We're not going to take either side. We're not going to say like, she wants space now and you have to deal with it. We're going to say, oh, she really wants space right now. She doesn't want to play with you. And that's so hard for you. And you're allowed to feel sad and it's okay. And I'm right here to help you with your feeling of sadness. And older sibling, you don't have to worry. I'm going to take care of all the younger sibling sadness and you're allowed to have your space, right? So, so we're caring for both. We're caring for both. This is what it's all about. I think sitting in that discomfort when you're so used to doing things a different way, when you're used to just telling the older sibling, oh, just please share the apple with your sister. Just please, so she'll stop, please. I think sitting there can be extremely awkward and challenging and bizarre for a very long time. And what I love the most about you, and I feel like you're one of the only people who speaks to this, is that this is a slow process. You say this a lot in your webinar. Like, don't expect to hear any of this information and A, have it be like, have it feel normal when you do it, B, have it go well, or C, have it not be uncomfortable for a pretty prolonged period of time. It's not like tomorrow. Exactly. I think this is so important. Whenever I show this with parents, about, by the way, for both child and parents, I often say this whenever we do anything with our children, expect it to take a long time for them to integrate it. Expect yourself to take a long time to integrate it too. Do you know that I have known this information for so long? It has taken me to, to really fully, fully, fully integrate it to the point where I can really say that I often do what I'm, what I'm suggesting in the course has taken me around six years. I right? love that you say that. I love that you say that. Again, it was gradual, meaning it wasn't just like six years and suddenly I woke up, I'm doing it. No, it was gradual, meaning like, you know, over the years I've been doing more and more and moving more and more and more in that direction. You know, first I moved away from being like punishing and then I moved away from, you know, threatening and then I moved away from, you know, overtly saying like, you do this and you do that, but like in subtle ways doing things. And then I, you know what I mean? It was very, very gradual, but I can say at this point, most of the time I do the things that I recommend. Not, not even always. Sometimes I'm still doing like the things that I, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing, but it's, 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 it's a process. It takes a lot of time to really integrate every single piece of this, you know? I know. I get it. I'm, I'm there. I'm in it. And I love having you in my, I love having you out there saying like, Hey, this is supposed to take a while and it's little by little. And I think, you know, most of us don't expect to be in that type of discomfort when we're doing something new that's supposed to be helpful, but that's absolutely part of the prop, part of the problem. You also say that assuming when one child is crying that the other has caused it, what did you do to your sister? Even if like nine times out of 10, it's that one of them hit the other. When you're standing in the kitchen and you can't see what they did to each other, not to say anything. I mean, boy, have I been there. Um, I, I really think it's, it's awkward and challenging to do things differently when I, I literally know one of them definitely grabbed the other, but listen, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. And it's so destructive when I'm wrong. Yeah. And even when you're right, right. So when you're wrong, for sure, it's terrible. But even when you're right, even when you're right, when you say like, what have you done to your sister? Automatically you're pinning one as the aggressor and the other one is the victim. Again, taking sides, right? We don't even realize like this, all the subtle ways in which we do that. And like I said, if we recognize that both of them are really coming from a place of having feelings and needs, then there's no aggressor and there's no victim. Both of them have feelings and needs that need to be met, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? Meaning like, yes, it definitely uh, manifested itself as one, you know, hurting the other. But if we go a little bit deeper than that, both of them need you. Both of them need you. Well, it's so against the advice that I've read in so many books, heard from so many coaches that's never worked for me. And I've done like a whole interview on this, which is that if somebody, if two siblings are fighting, 
it's like this huge, like modern day parenting trick, right? To go to the one that was hurt instead of going to punish the aggressor, right? Okay, maybe progress from like immediately jumping into a punishment. But if any parent has ever tried this, I'm sure you've watched the aggressor totally freak out and feel totally unseen and totally unheard and things get so much worse. You are the only person who I've heard say, you have to show up for both of them, which can be very strange hello, you just hit my kid. Why am I helping you? But there's a reason behind that, you say. There's a reason why they're doing it. And by showing up for both children, you're helping minimize that resentment that they have towards each other. My favorite thing that you said in the entire webinar, which blew my mind, I ran right downstairs to tell my husband about it, was give up on making everything equal. Blimey, I've been losing my mind. Like, okay, we're both Jewish, right? So, you know, there's a lot of brain activity, okay? And I noticed in my little kid, she can be very like obsessed with things being equal and like we're counting and I'm like, I'm going to develop like some sort of obsessive like problem. Like, like there's so much upset. There's so much focus on like, well, I have eight of these and I have eight of these and four of mine are yellow and four of hers are yellow. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm losing my mind. And I'm trying so hard to make everything equal. And I'm like, this can't be the only way, but like, what other way is there? If things aren't equal, aren't children going to start fighting with each other? What do we do? What do we do instead of obsessively making things equal? Yeah. Okay. I want to get to that in a moment, but I just want to reiterate something that you said a moment, moment ago, because I think it's <laughs> yes. so, so crucial. What you said about not choosing one child right? That's the advice I was always given is that you go to the child who was hurt. And I can't even tell you how damaging it was, how unhelpful it was. It literally only made the rivalry worse, the jealousy worse, resentment worse, everything worse. Until finally I had an epiphany and I never heard it from anyone. It was really my, oh, actually I did. I think I once read someone right. She has a motto that says they are both my children. And I started saying that to myself every time I would intervene. They are both my children. Why am I treating one as if they're my child? Oh, poor baby. And the other one as if they're like some sort of bully who just entered the room. They are both my children. They're both vulnerable. They both need a hug. And it's so important. And it is very countercultural and very counter to really what our feelings are telling us in the moment. But I cannot even tell you how incredibly magical it is when we really, really adopt that. Okay, so going back to your question about equal, right? The, the, the counterintuitive thing about this is that the more we try to make things equal, the more uh, conflict we're actually inviting and creating. We're actually making more problems for ourselves and our children. Because guess what? In life, nothing is ever equal, right? So meaning, because why? Because we all have different needs and we all have different ways to meet them. There, it just doesn't even make sense that every single child needs the exact same thing. Right. And I tell them, and, I, and, and so the thing is that with my children, when they, it's very normal and natural, by the way, to want things to be equal. I think it's almost like a, it's not something that we create. I think it's a very, uh, you know, I guess primal or instinctual thing that children have. Like she has more and I have less. So I think every single time they have, you know, children, they'll go through this phase where they're going to try to make things equal. And that's your opportunity as a parent to really drive the message home. My job is not to make things equal. It's to meet everybody's needs. So come to me, tell me, what are your needs? Let's have a conversation and I'm going to meet your needs. Uh, what the other person has is really irrelevant to this conversation because I'm here for you. Like, what does your sibling have to do with this, right? And so that's why I keep bringing the conversation back to that. Whenever my children would say like, but she has more, she I say, wait, wait, hold on. Something's going on for you. Tell me, what is it that you need? I, I, your, what your sibling has is really not relevant right now. What I'm here to meet your needs. And then I would even talk about this concept in general. Like I would share like, let's say, so one of my kids has glasses. And I would say, she has glasses. Does that mean you need glasses, right? 
and, and so we would talk about different things and like everybody has different things because we all need different things. And to say that, oh, she has glasses, well, let me have glasses. You know, it doesn't even make sense. You don't need the glasses, right? So we would do a lot, a lot of that and have a lot of conversations like that. There's actually a book that I don't, I think it's called Fair City or something where like they, they really drive this message home where basically in the city, everybody had things equal. And, and, and basically to the point where everybody just got sick of it. Everyone's like, I don't want to have braces just because of the other person had braces, you know? And it kind of like drives a message home that having everything equal doesn't really, is not really, it, it, nobody's happy, right? Nope, and so, that way. exactly. So, so I really, really, really was something that I really um, was very firm and clear about with my children. Like, I'm not going to engage in this equal conversation. That's not a conversation we're going to have, but I really care about you and I care about your needs. So let's have a conversation about you. And they would constantly be the message, the, the, the conversation back to them. And after a while, they, they really started learning like, okay, this, it's totally like what my sibling has is like totally not relevant to me. It's about me and what I need. And so if I want something, I'll come to my parent and ask them. Well, you're teaching them something beautiful about life as well, because like how many times have we looked on Instagram at somebody who has maybe all these things that we don't have and thought like, why don't I have that? And it's like, well, that's not something that I actually need or that I've even pursued in my life. Um, I'm just aware that they have it because of social media, but it's not something that I necessarily need. And how many times have, you know, my, my youngest is like a stuffy girl. She loves her lovies. She loves her stuffed animals. And um, my dog also loves stuffed animals. So he will often rip hers apart. And I have like a replacement, I have a replacement archive, if you will. And um, wow. often I'll go to the store and I'll go to get her little uni, her unicorn where they sell it here. And uh, I'll like pick up one for Selma. And Selma's end up in Violet's crib because Selma doesn't even want it. But for me, it's like, well, I have to get one for both of them. But then Selma needs like a new pair of shoes and Violet really doesn't. So I end up getting each of them a new pair of shoes. And it's like, this isn't even sustainable. This is like yeah. not how I want to be living my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really ridiculous if you think about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. They each have yeah. different needs. And by showing them that and letting them be in the discomfort, well, mommy, why did you get Violet a uni? Well, Selma, you haven't slept with a stuffed animal since you were like ever. You've never liked them. But is there something that you need? Is there something right. that you want? Correct. And I'll even take it deeper. I'll say like, is it that you feel that I care about her because I bought this for her? Is that what you're seeking? Are you looking for care from me? How can I care about you? Right? Because that's really what's underneath it. There's usually a feeling of, I want you to care as much for me as you do for them. Or like that gesture was so loving. I want to feel that love too. So, so I like to go deeper. That's why I say, what is it that you need? And I try to help them understand what it is that's happening for them. And I try to meet that. I'll say like, is I it you that. looking yeah it's yeah. beautiful it's Selma it was Selma's birthday recently she got like all these presents okay this was extremely triggering for me because I'm looking at my younger kid I never had a sibling right and I'm having I'm watching her two and a half year old self look at her sister open all these gifts every single part of me wanted to somehow like placate like like give her her own party give her some presents my husband had to stop me so many he was like laura it's selma's birthday like let her experience that this is selma's birthday party like she's going to be okay or she's you know she will have her own birthday you can tell her about that violet was actually better about it than i was it was, was just so say that. hard for me she was fine the presents kind of kept coming in we had more presents yesterday and i was like oh god like please help. Like I was just freaking out. My husband's like, you got to just let her, let, let Selma open the box. Violet was fine. Violet was fine. Yeah. I was just going to say that, by the way, what I found is that my kids are not only fine. Sometimes they're even, they enjoy the fact that their sibling is getting something. Meaning like it, they're, they're part of like the excitement. It's like, Oh, let's open the next present. What did you get? 
Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. They're, they're capable of that. that if we they don't are. inject our own. Yeah. Yeah. Me, I'm like, oh my God, how are you going to feel? Are you okay? And I could tell, like, I knew something was going on because I knew like this is Selma's birthday, but I mean, man, it was, it was hard for me. Everything you mentioned um, in your seminar um, up to a certain point was prevention. Cause you say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So a lot of your recommendations are minimizing um, the rivalry that can sort of occur naturally. Um, let's talk about scenarios that are going to arise anyway. We've talked about triggering scenarios. Um, what about when one child is bothering the other, okay? And it's very clear that one kid is, is really doing the pestering and the other one is kind of the victim of the situation. Walk me through a scenario like that and show me how as a parent I can intervene without contributing to the conflict that already exists. Yeah, so for everybody listening, beware. It's gonna feel very uncomfortable and you're gonna be like, no, 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 no. I cannot do that. He needs to know or she needs to know that it's wrong to do that, right? So again, we have to... Re- like you said, it's going to be uncomfortable in the beginning. And there's a lot of our own conditioning and a lot of our, like, this kind of this need to kind of like not let people get away with doing the wrong thing. And like a lot of this kind of attitude or, or conditioning that comes up um, in these situations, but they really, really only contribute more again to that, to those unhealthy dynamics and to the rivalry. Okay. So your child, so one child is obviously being like the aggressor or the one who's actually teasing or hurting the other one. Again, what do you do? You step in, first calm yourself down. If you're feeling anything or whatever, take a deep breath. I'm here to help, right? And then don't choose sides. Don't choose one child. Don't turn to the aggressor and say, stop doing that. That's not nice to her. And you don't turn to the other one and say like, oh, poor you. He's being so mean to you or she's being so mean to you. Instead, what do we do? We go for, again, both of them have needs and feelings underneath what's happening for them. Tune into those and empathize with each one. So I would turn to either one. And again, I would do them in close succession, like very quickly with one another. So I might turn to the one who's actually teasing and say like, oh, something's really bothering you about, you know, what your sibling is doing, huh? And I would turn to the sibling and say like, and it must hurt that he's saying these kinds of things to you, right? So I really just empathize with both their positions, both of them. I'm looking for what's happening underneath what what you're doing. And so then I'll hear more information. So then the, the aggressor might say like, yeah, I hate when, you know, she does that or like, she's so annoying or, you know, whatever it is. And you'll say like, yeah, like it's really annoying to you. Something about it really, really bothers you. And then you'll turn to the other one and say like, it must be hard to hear this because you're just trying to live your life. You're not, you're not trying to hurt anybody or do anything. Hmm? You know, another one will say like, yeah, they might even start crying and then you'll empathize with them, right? The beauty of this also is listen, listen to what's happening, right? So I'm not only empathizing with what's, what's happening to each one, not choosing sides, but by doing this, when I empathize with each one, I'm actually allowing each one to hear the other's perspective, okay? And now the beauty of this is that the one who is the aggressor in quotes, right? I mean, everything's in quotes, but right? The aggressor in quotes, when I'm empathizing with the aggressor, the, the victim starts hearing more and more that really it's about the aggressor and their own feelings. Like it is totally not personal. It's just that their fine sounds annoying or that they want this to be this way. Like the more empathy you offer, the more clear it becomes to them that this is really not about me. It's about their own experience and how they experience the world. And then when you empathize with the other one, right? And you're going back and forth. When you empathize with the victim in quotes, then the aggressor, and they're able to hear only because you're not choosing sides, they hear that it really hurts the victim. They see the tears, they see the crying, and they have a little bit of compassion, a little bit of like, oh, wow, I'm hurting my sibling. It gets aroused in them. 
Now, as soon, if you ever, if you do a little bit even of the like, stop talking like that to your sister, don't do that. You have shut down the capacity for the aggressor to feel empathy for their younger sibling or for the older, whatever it is, for the sibling That's that they're- a good visual. Like, oh, what I'm doing is actually preventing what I want to happen. Exactly. Meaning when you empathize, you're actually, think of, think of empathy as sort of like a key to open the heart, right? Mm-hmm. So now as soon as I empathize, I'm opening the heart and now not only understanding him, I'm also able to, he's now able to see and hear the experience of the victim. As soon as, think of, think of the, uh, think of like any sort of admonition or scolding or like, don't do that as a lock to the heart. That's it. You shut it off. And now anything you say from here on out, It's just, there's a total, there's a wall of defensiveness and the child cannot feel any sort of empathy or compassion for their sibling. They're just worried about defending themselves against your anger and your upset. That is such a good visual. I love that. I think that's so helpful because most of us go into these scenarios and we feel like viscerally protective over one child, maybe the one that's getting hurt. And it's totally protected. I love that. Yeah. Protected. Yeah. Yes. It's like, oh, I, I, you, you, somebody's getting hurt. I think a lot of people at home are dealing with a toddler hitting baby scenario, which you talk about, which is so funny. Cause I look back, like, you know, my oldest was only two and a half when my youngest was born. And that's like, <laughs> yeah. that's like nothing. It's like an infant. Like now, like I think about that and I'm like two and a half. I see like parents writing in to like different accounts, like parenting accounts online. And they're like, what do I do about my one-year-old who's hitting their sibling? And I'm like, your one-year-old, your one-year-old, it's like a puppy, you know? But like, I didn't know that when I was, I was like, oh my God, she's hitting and she's 12 months. Like, what do I do? Like phone the child therapist, whatever. I was like freaking out. And so I try to think about that a lot when I'm feeling that way towards my children. Like when I have that, what's wrong with you feeling, I try to remember mm. I had that when I have a two and a half year old that was being like physically, I don't even know if she actually was hitting Violet, but I remember her doing things that I felt very threatened by. Cause as a mom, you just like want to, you have to protect your young. Right. So I would get angry with her. I mean, I remember that. And um, you talk about a different way to deal with this that sort of helps both children feel seen, that, that most toddlers hitting their children are actually trying to engage them in play and to see the positive intent, which Becky Bailey talks about, like in conscious discipline, like always look at what the positive could be. Like, were you trying to play with your sister um, and, and showing up for both of them, which can be very difficult. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the crazy thing is that let's say there's a, a child who teases their sibling, like an older one, you know, we also have that same visceral reaction. And I love what you say about, you know, like they're a puppy and it's the same throughout all the age. It's, it's the same even when they're eight and they're 10. It's that, like, they're still so young and they're, they're a kid, you know, and I often think back to like my own childhood and, you know, the way like we would fight as siblings. I'm like, I was never traumatized by my, my siblings, hurt, you know, fighting with me and like teasing me. Yeah, I was uncomfortable. Yeah, I didn't like it. I would go to pick, complain to my parents, whatever it was. It was never traumatic. You know, it was traumatic if my parents intervened in a way that was really harsh or like, you know, chose one side or I felt completely uncared for. That was much more damaging to me than my sibling, you know, and I think that's it's really important to keep in mind. You know, that is when we, when so we, interesting. I would have no way of knowing that because I, it was just me. So like, Um, I'm always thinking, oh my God, your sister doesn't want to play with you. Like this is going to ruin your entire life. So yeah, well, Well, there's a disclaimer here. I know people who have been traumatized by their siblings, right? But we're talking, but that was actual bullying. Like it was extreme and it was things that were completely not okay. So I'm not suggesting that we don't intervene, but just to put things into perspective that the, the, the kind of like regular rivalry that happens in homes, it is not traumatic or damaging to your children. 
what is far more damaging, right? And also not only damaging, it also really perpetuates more and more of it is choosing sides, stepping in, being like scolding, all that. Yeah, so I wanted to go back to that scenario with a child who, let's say, you know, you, if you scold them, you're only making them more likely to tease a sibling like a second later, five minutes later, an hour later. Like, what have you actually accomplished? You know, we feel like I didn't let them get away with it and I told them off. And we sort of have this feeling of like, I did something about it, but we're really only perpetuating it. It's only gonna happen again in just a little while. Whereas if we actually offer that empathy and we've opened their heart, not only have we heard their needs and then maybe we can problem solve with them. Like, oh, if you know, your siblings do that, it's really annoying to you. Maybe you can go to your room, maybe you can go there. So we've actually helped them with an actual solution with what was bothering them. But we've also then, uh, you know, created some sort of empathy for their sibling in them which makes them far less likely to then continue doing that. And I've seen this clear, clearly with my, 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 my children. You know, so, so again, so in the long run, we're actually really, really creating better relationships and less rivalry when we do that, even though in the moment it can feel kind of like, I'm not doing enough. Like I should be telling them off. Are there any examples of situations where you feel that there's an exception that parents should intervene? You were talking about where it is really unacceptable, where there's bullying, where the child could be traumatized by what's happening with their sibling. What are some examples of, of that type of behavior? Yeah, so, so meaning I believe we should always intervene, right? right? Like in all these situations, I'm showing you intervention, meaning I'm coming in as a parent, but I'm empathizing with each and I'm kind of doing like not choosing sides and all that, right? So it's just, I'm not intervening in a way that's like, oh, again, again, of course, also if they're like actually like, um, you know, physically hurting them, I step in and stop them, which I discuss in the class, right? Mm -hmm. With words, it's much harder to stop somebody, right? If someone's teasing their sibling with words, it's much harder to stop, like, really, you can't put tape on their mouth, right? So, so the best way to do is offer empathy, because as soon as you offer empathy, that actually de-escalates them, and you'll see, they're, they're, now the conversation becomes between you and them, and they'll usually stop. So that's the best way to really stop it. But, but okay, so now if it's, let's say, really extreme, and there's a situation where one sibling, for some reason, is really doing it, then again, I wouldn't suggest that we like scold or do anything like that because that again won't help, but our intervention might have to be much more um, intense or much more uh, like take many other forms, meaning maybe the child needs to go for therapy. Uh, maybe we need to get the child a few different kinds of therapies. Like we have to explore what's happening. Why is this child bullying their sibling? Is there an intense amount of jealousy? Maybe this child really, really just struggles in his explosive rage. So, so maybe they really, really need help with, with that. Meaning we need to figure out how to help this child so that this doesn't happen, but we don't necessarily change the way that we actually intervene in situations. It's more about uh, prevention. Bringing additional like, resources or having exactly, more support. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and then putting preventative measures in place so that things don't happen to protect them kind of working around it and also helping that child. I love one of the things that you brought up when you were talking about prevention, that's one of the things parents do that they probably don't realize they're doing, and I've certainly done it, is always using one child as the reason why you need to end an activity or a reason why you need to leave a place. Oh my God, I was listening and I was like, wait, like I didn't even notice I was doing that. My youngest is always the reason why we have to go to bed, why we have to leave the room, why we, and, and I watched my oldest have such a reaction to that. And I have noted like, well, that's not good, but I have it, you know, and, and you say like, listen, there's going to be times where this is something that you have to do, right? You are going to have to leave early occasionally, but using one child's name is the reason why you're leaving or naming someone constantly can cause resentment in the other kid. That was like, that was minorly mind blowing for me. Cause I, I haven't, I, I've, I would have never thought about that. Not for a second. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, all these things happen because my oldest, my oldest child is actually very great and very verbal and expresses these things to me, you know? And, yeah, so and, she and helps happened, you. Yeah, she like you. it happened once and she's like, why are we always doing what she needs us to do? And I was like, oh, wait, good point. I keep mentioning, oh, she needs to go here. Oh, she needs to go there. Oh, right. And it's always about like what the baby needs or what the young child, younger child needs. So we want to be careful. Like we can just say, oh, we need to leave now or, oh, we're going here. We don't actually necessarily have to name, you know, the, the other child as the reason for it. Cause then it's like, again, from the perspective of the child, it's like, you care more about this sibling. We have to leave the park. I have to leave the park right now because my sibling needs to sleep. So what my sibling needs is more important for, you know, what I do. Like I, I want to be at the park, you know? So, so we don't necessarily have to mention again, uh, if there's a really, you know, a, a good working relationship with children and we don't do this often, of course, once in a while, it's totally okay to say like the sibling needs something or whatever, you know? And I think that they can even have compassion and empathy for their sibling and say like, oh yeah, yeah, sibling's hurried, let's go. You know, like these things are for sure, you know, within reason, it's okay. But we want to be mindful that we're not constantly doing that, which we can really, really fall into that um, you know, trap without realizing, like you said. For sure. I want to end our conversation by talking about praise. Um, this was another area where I probably first heard about praise, what to do, what not to do when my youngest was like one or two. And I was extremely resistant to what I was hearing. I still, I still maintain some of that resistance. Um, and I, I clicked on you in your webinar, you have a link to a post that you did on praise and positive ways to give praise because you say in your course that praise is one of the main factors that can contribute to sibling rivalry. And, and I was thinking about this, you know, my kids are sitting in the back seat. They're each buckling their, themselves in their car seat. One of them is totally uninterested in buckling themselves. And the other one is. So I've often gone in and praised the one who is doing what I have asked. And you're saying this is actually causing conflict. So how do I, let's take this scenario actually as an example. Okay. I've got one kid that is actually doing something that's great. She's two and a half. She's buckling her own seatbelt. And I've got another one who wants to chat with me. And like, I've asked her every morning for three years to buckle her seatbelt and it still has yet to work. So my youngest is like, mommy, look at me. I buckled my seatbelt. She always wants me to see because I'm always like telling her how proud I am, right? Mm -hmm. How do I do, how do I acknowledge, like obviously my little kid wants me to see that she did something and my youngest is my integrity child. So honestly, she couldn't care less whether or not, <laughs> whether or not she, she wants to talk to me. That's what she wants to do. So how do I navigate this scenario in a way that is not contributing to conflict through praise? Because I don't think praise is bad. I think we want to show children that like we see them, right? But you're saying that yes. there's ways to do it that are more constructive. Yeah. So, so you listen, obviously it's just semantics, like what is praise actually? But yeah, we want to acknowledge children. We want to see them. Like you said, everybody wants to be seen. We all want to be witnessed, but we don't want to be basically give like conditional acknowledgement. We're like, I see you now because you're pleasing me. Right. Right. Whereas, right. right we, want, we want to see them always. Right. And we kind of also want to really give them feedback that shows them that we, we also want to acknowledge them in a way that they're not looking to us to feel good about themselves. We're basically, we're pointing, we're helping them turn inwards to feel good about themselves. So what I mean to say is like, it's not like I approve of what you're doing. It's look what you're doing. How does that feel for you? Do you hear the difference? Look at that. Right. Are you proud of you? So you say asking a child, are you proud of yourself? Yeah, now, I, saw, I saw a post recently though, that made me chuckle. And it was like an interchange between a husband and wife. And it yeah. was related. Maybe you saw it was related to like 
modern parenting advice around praise. And it was like, well, how would you feel if your husband was like, well, do you think you look good right now? And it's like, well, no, of course I want him to tell me that I look good in my dress. So aren't there times and opportunities where we can show children, hey, I, I think you're beautiful. Isn't that also yeah. very important? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I have a very, I, I think I do a very balanced approach to this. It's just that I understand the downsides of praise. So I really try to stay away from praise, but I do believe that they can hear feedback from us. I just like for it not to override their own. That's, that's the like only that. difference. I like that. Yeah. How yeah, do you feel yeah. about buckling your seatbelt? Yeah. Like when my okay. child comes and shows me a painting and she, or she drew and she says, what, which one do you like better? I say, first, I want to hear which one you do it. And, and, so, and so you see, and then I share what I do. But at first I wanted to hear hers, you know? And so, so it's, we can find both. It's that mine isn't more important than yours. Yours is not more important than mine, but like, I don't want to override yours. I, I really want you to still be able to access your own feedback about this or what you really think and feel about it. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah, so, pra so praising one child frequently. I mean, I don't oh. even say that I praise one over the other, but I would say that I've noticed where praising one child in general is going to contribute to conflict. So can you tell us a little bit about how that happens? Yeah, I mean, whenever, well, yeah, with a seatbelt thing. Well, <laughs> I, I love integrity children because they couldn't care less about praise. But the thing is that, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're way too authentic for that. But the thing is yeah. that with, with, let's say, if it was two harmony children, when you say to one, like, oh, wow, look, you buckled your seatbelt, the other one's like, oh my gosh, which is what parents really want. They feel this sense of pressure, like, oh my gosh, I also want to be noticed and acknowledged, and so they quickly buckle their seatbelt, which is what parents want to happen. But again, you can imagine how that would actually create a feeling of like, my parent notices my, the other sibling more than me, and I had to do something in order for them to notice me. So it's kind of like, right? So you see how that would create a little bit of like jealousy um, yeah. among siblings, right? Right. So that's why we don't want, that's why we try, just try to stay away from praise. We try to make it not conditional on what they've done. It's just that I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you, you know? And I actually have a whole post on explaining like the difference and how to do them, how to, you know, what the difference between praise and um, simply just acknowledging a child, seeing them, you know, I love that post. It's available through your webinar. I actually clicked right. on it last night and I found the most prominent thing about it was as opposed to you did this, um, you know, you helped your sister you talk about like, that was helpful, like this action that you did. So it's not really assigning this characteristic to the child, but it's showing That's them true. that their action was helpful in that moment. Or impactful. Yeah. And yeah, impactful. Yeah. yeah. I find that when we acknowledge children, by the way, like I see this all the time with my children, they feel so much better than any other, any praise I can ever give them. There's a certain, because I'm really giving them, like I said, I'm allowing them to feel the, feel the goodness of what they've done rather than being the one who is putting my stamp of approval on it. I'm yeah. just highlighting what they've done and kind of allowing them to sort of sit in that as opposed to saying like, I approve of what you've done. You hear the difference? Anyway, so let's go to the scenario with the car, right? With your ch children, like how do you navigate something like that? Okay, now by the way, the reason why your child says, mommy, look at me, look at me, is because we call that a praise junkie. So when a child is actually used to receiving praise, they kind of become dependent on it and then they look for it That's all the my time. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She so gets it from her like, mama. Yeah, uh-huh. Right, so yeah. when they hear you, you say like, oh, my seatbelt, you're right. So now they're like, oh, wait, mom, do you notice me now? Do you notice me now? Do you approve of me now? So they kind of like seek that all the time because they're used to receiving that. So I would like, I would say probably a little scale back on the, you know, I, oh, wow, you have your seatbelt. I'm proud of you. Right. And when she starts saying like, mom, like, um, look at me, look at me. You can just say, oh, do you have your seatbelt on? Right. So, so stay away from like, I'm proud of you and the whole like big reaction more like, oh, do you have your seatbelt on acknowledgement? I see you. Right. 
And then you can even say like, are you proud of yourself? Because if that's maybe that's what she's trying to say to you or whatever. And then you're turning the feedback a little bit more inward rather than making it about like you approving of what she's done. Okay. Now, are you asking them how to get your other child to put her seatbelt on? Oh, no, I, I've given up oh. on that. Um, oh. I don't know. Honestly, I, I honestly, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, that's so, so much of what I've learned from you and from doing this podcast is like to work with what I've got and to stop pushing up against what is not going to happen. I, I, I think my, my oldest is going to get to a booster seat without having ever buckled her entire car seat seatbelt. And I'm okay with that because I don't think that that's going to cause hell to freeze over. I'd love to hear your perspective, but honestly, it is not worth the morning argument on buckling her seatbelt. And I'm no, I'm in complete agreement with you. I'm completely okay. agree with you. We, I always say, like, let's look at the long run. Let's look at the big picture. Is this yeah. going to be an issue for a lifetime? Do you have an issue doing it? You don't? Perfect. Then go ahead. Right? It's I about, don't, yeah. Does this work for the parent? And, and is this going to be an issue for the child? Yeah, this is not something, I mean, I was ruining my own morning. I mean, every morning by just like hanging my hat on like, this is the thing that you have to do every morning. And like the fact mm -hmm. that you're not doing it is a reflection on me and my parenting. And it's like, do I actually care about buckling her seatbelt? This is like, like, is this something that's actually bothering me? No. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and do it myself. It's not something right, that I care about. Exactly. And it's not yeah. going to create a child who doesn't buckle their seatbelt when they're 20. Like when my first, yeah, when my first, when my first kid was child was born, there were so many messages and there continue to be about equality in parenting, right? That you're supposed to do the same amount and the same thing as your spouse. That messaging I found out very quickly did not work for me and did not work for the dynamic in my family. And I would start to get one second, blame me, my dog is barking. I'm so sorry. Hold on one <laughs> second. Hold on. Hampton. Hey, Hampton. Okay. Um, let me start over here. Okay. So there was all, can you hear me? Yes. I okay. So there was all of this advice, which there continues to be about um, equality and, and everybody doing the same thing and doing equal amounts. And I learned really quickly that this wasn't going to work for me and for our family dynamic. And one of the things that really helped me see that was one of the things I love doing is getting my kids dressed in the morning and braiding their hair. Okay. And I started to see things on Instagram or read articles on, on what have you. And it's like, you know, we, we should both be dressing. You should wake up these mornings and I should wake up these mornings and you should get her dressed these mornings and I should get her dressed the other ones. And it was making me completely miserable. My husband has no interest in waking up and getting our kid dressed. And it's like my favorite thing to do. And so somebody finally said to me, they were like, do you even want him to help you? Like, why do you even want his help? Like, wouldn't that kind of bother you? Like, don't you love? And I was like, yeah, like, I don't even want his help. And it's kind of like the same thing with my kids. It's like, why am I pressing this thing that's causing so much conflict? I mean, I would wake up every morning and I would start the day with this obsession to have us do an equal amount and it would never go the way I wanted it to. And I set myself up for failure. And it's like, you know, letting that go has been the best thing I've ever done. My husband loves to take my children on these outdoor excursions. He doesn't mind messes. Um, he like loves all of the nitty gritty crap that I could never do. Like it is so not for me. I'm happy to paint your nails. I love braiding your hair. I love getting you dressed. He doesn't want to do any of that stuff. And to be honest, that works out really well for us. I am more than happy to do these things. I'm actually more than happy to do more. Um, it's, it's like, if I get caught up in the things that I can't force you to do, I'm going to be miserable. It was about me, honestly. Yeah. 
I love that. And also like, this is why I often tell parents, like they'll say like, which boundaries should I have? And like, what should I expect from it? And I'm always like, there is no, every family will look different. And I don't want you to do it. Oh, because they're doing it. We should do it too. What works for you? What do you believe is important for your family? That's it. And if it works, like if it works for you to have all your children sleep in your room, then, then by all means have all your children sleep in your room. Like there's no rule or there's no like thing that says like, it's terrible for kids to sleep in your room. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for you. That's fine too. You know, so you have to do like, it doesn't work for me to, to see about, to about my child. It works for me. It is not harmful for my child. And I think the people who've written books about having your kids not sleep in your room have written them to help parents get sleep. The ones who want sleep, right? If you don't care oh, yeah, about sure. your kids sleeping in your bed, then they can sleep there. I think that's like the biggest misconception. It's like, yes, of course, there's a book about how important it is for your child to sleep in their room from day zero. Okay. But that room is probably supposed to be purchased by the parent who can't stand to sleep in the same bed as their kid. If that's something that you love that makes you happy, like, go for it. That's what works for exactly. your family. Exactly. That's what I say. If it's not harmful for your child, if it won't wait in any way impede their growth or maturity or, or anything, then, then it becomes a matter of, is this something that I want to do that works for me or does it not? That's it. If it works for you, do it. If it doesn't, don't. You know what I mean? Amen. I love it. Believe me, you are so awesome. Thank you so much for coming back and for chatting with us about siblings. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And as usual, like I said last time, and I really, really, again, noticed, I really love the way you guide these interviews and the questions that you ask. And they're just so, they really give me an opportunity to share in a way that I'm really, really like grateful to. Well, I am so grateful. And uh, if you want to hear, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more from Blamey on Sibling Rivalry, that was not even the half of it. Um, it's a very dense, wonderful class on her website, BlameyHeller.com. Um, you can purchase her class on Sibling Rivalry and several more. And I promise this won't be the last you hear from her. She hasn't, we haven't, we haven't come up with the next topic, but I'm never going to run out of questions for you. Thank you again for coming on the show. I hope you liked that last episode of Look Ma No Hands. Feel free to take a screenshot, share it with a friend, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear it. If you want all the Look Ma No Hands updates, follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Froze. I look forward to joining you again next time.